Well, Father, we are just so grateful to come here and to sit under your word. Father, it's amazing to just watch, you know, new life coming into this church, new life in Christ. Um, and Lord, these are happy times. And Lord, sometimes happy times can almost put a spotlight on the bitterness of those who experience it. And I pray that in some way this message will minister to them and just equip our church to know how to help those who are enduring a bitter providence. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I think maybe 10 years ago, I, I decided to do an experiment with my children. That's why we have children, so we can do experiments, right? <laughs> and I was making brats and to make brats the correct way, you boil them in beer before you put them on the barbecue. And so I had the cheap beer that I use for cooking, cooking beer, and uh, my children, uh, they grew up in a, are growing up in a sports-watching family, which means that they've been exposed to a lot, of, a lot of beer commercials. And if you were a child looking at a beer commercial, you would think that is Kool-Aid for adults. So I knew my kids were curious about it, and so we decided to uh, do our experiment. We got four Dixie cups and my video camera and put a little bit of beer in each Dixie cup and then we had our kids drink. Now, in my defense, before you judge me, this was primarily Becky's idea. <laughs> I just got the video camera. And so we run around the table and you just... You know, it's like their insides were, were melting. And I remember the, the magic words that I believe Jake said at the end, I'm never drinking beer again. Call that success. <laughs> remember that when you were in college. But, but, you know, beer just has this bitter flavor. And I don't know why people drink it, to be honest. But I'm not judging you if you do. I'm just saying you have bad taste. But... Um, <laughs> But bitter is the opposite of sweet. And the thing, when you have something that's truly bitter, there's like this full body revulsion, right? This unpleasant experience where your brain is telling you, don't do that again, right? And, and there's always been this connection between a bitter taste and a bitter experience, which even the Hebrews understood, right? Tanner talked about uh, the Passover celebration and the deliverance of of the Israelites from Exodus and how they were in a real bitter situation. And part of the way they were to remember that bitter situation is seen in Exodus 12, 8. How he's talking about preparing the Passover celebration that they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Have you guys ever done a Seder? I mean, part of it is you, you eat bitter herbs like horseradish or just something that'll make you go... And that's to help the Jews remember the bitter plight that they endured. When you undergo a bitter situation, you kind of want to spit it out. But what happens when you can't spit it out? You taste the same thing over and over and over again until it wears down your soul. Well, that's where we find Naomi. She lost her husband and then lost her sons. She lost everything. 
And now she is in a situation in life where she must return to her homeland. And we pick it up in Ruth 19, 1, 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara, just so you know, literally means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now one thing about the Bible, it's a real book with real humans. And and Naomi is expressing what a lot of us think inside. I mean, one of the classic things you might hear in the church is, I'm not bitter. Why do people say I'm not bitter? Because it'd be sin to be bitter and I don't want you to judge me. You, you may not want to tell God I'm bitter because you're afraid you might be struck by lightning. But bitterness does persist nonetheless. You and your husband have been trying to have a baby for years and you hear about the rapid filling of the nursery, and you think, when's our turn? Uh, perhaps you have endured a painful relational breakup, and you have to watch your best friend get married. You're suffering in some sort of chronic pain you haven't felt right for years, and this fringe couple over here, they're not serving like you're serving, and yet... They seem to be just healthy. Or perhaps this is the first Christmas without a certain loved one in your life. And while everyone is celebrating, listening to last Christmas and other inane Christmas songs, you're suffering from a broken heart. My bitterness is something that will touch all of us at some point in time, and it almost creates a crisis of faith, right? How can a good God who is clearly in control, allow something like this to happen to me? And, and what happens when you believe in a sovereign God where he's the one who calls the shots and he's going to do what he's going to do? I mean, you're almost in this helpless situation and you are just bitter. And so here we have Naomi in a moment of emotional honesty who says, just call me bitter. And as we walk through this passage, we, we get the pathology of bitterness, right? And this is not comprehensive, but it's true of Naomi in this situation, that bitterness becomes an identity. It became her identity. That bitterness blames God, and bitterness blinds us to blessings, right? It's all up here, right? Bitterness becomes an identity, bitterness blames God, and bitterness blinds us to blessings. And what we're going to do today is we're going to explore the pathology of bitterness so that we can start to work towards its cure. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Bitterness becomes an identity. Now, remember when Naomi left. She left because of the leadership of her husband, because there was a famine in the land. And she and her husband and her two sons left. And then... 
we see something striking in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Two. How many people left? Four. Now she's down to two. A Moabite daughter-in-law who insisted on following her. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? I mean, I think part of it is they were surprised, right? I, I thought you were gone. We haven't seen you in years. Are you coming back? But there's another element too where it's almost like they didn't recognize her. It's almost as if the bitterness began to kind of settle in. Do you guys remember what Naomi literally means? Pleasant one, right? It would be the equivalent of, of, of joy, right? Pleasant one. And when she hears her name, it sounds like an indictment. And so she says, don't call me pleasant one anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You see, in the, in the Hebrew uh, tradition at that time, the name and somebody's name conveyed their essence. And so when somebody would rename themselves, they would redefine themselves. They would redefine their essence. And in this case, she is defined by her bitterness. I mean, let me tell you about Joy. While in high school, she was the homecoming queen. She was dating the stud starting quarterback. She got a full ride scholarship to college and she ended up marrying her high school sweetheart. They had two sons and all seemed to go well until her husband ran off with a younger woman. And, and he didn't just run off. He threw some grenade, relational grenades telling her and her sons that she is suffocating him. She is manipulative. He never really loved her. He wished he would just give her space. It was a bitter, acrimonious divorce. One son took it really hard and turned to drug abuse and eventually overdosed. The other one just wanted to run as far away from this as possible, and he has nothing to do with her. And in the process, Joy began to suffer panic attacks and had a nervous breakdown and could not hold her job anymore, and so she's forced to move home. And while in the drugstore, she runs into a, a friend of hers who says, Joy, is that you? And it's almost like that name is an indictment. How can my name be Joy when this is my life? That's Naomi. Why call me pleasant one when my life is clearly bitter? And, and she begins to take it on as an identity. Suffering has become her identity. And friend, this happens more than you know. Right? We live in a culture that rewards people who are suffering. If you're part of an oppressed group, that gives you some sort of social capital or social stature for a number of reasons. People are supposed to comfort you, look out for you, um, give you the benefit of the doubt. If you're suffering, that's almost seen as righteousness. And so there is a tendency in all of us to want to define ourselves by our suffering. So suffering becomes our identity instead of Christ becoming our identity. So we become a hyphenated Christian in some way. And so how do you know if you crossed over? 
Hear me out. Sometimes you have a situation in life that forces you to change your life. A heart attack, a special needs child, a sudden death. All of that forces you to reorient your life. You have to do things differently. There is a place for lament. But if you're not careful, that can change you. It can become a source of your identity. You cross over when, when you talk. If, you, if somebody wants to get to know you, and your first thought is they need to know my suffering instead of they need to get to know my redemption, then suffering has become your identity. If you think about your relationship with Christ in these terms, like Christ helps me with my suffering instead of suffering helps me with my relationship with Christ, you've crossed over. Do you see the difference? If you always think in terms of suffering helps my relationship with Christ, then Christ is your identity and you see suffering as a means of refining that versus Christ helps me with my suffering, then suffering is your primary reason for existence. When suffering is your identity, you believe that people can't really know you unless they know about your suffering instead of your redemption. When suffering is your identity, you introduce yourself as a survivor of X instead of somebody who's been redeemed by the Lord. Now, it's not wrong to have those other things, but is it framed in the context of your identity with Christ, or have you wholesale rejected your identity with Christ or diminished it so that you are more known and you perceive yourself more by your relationship with suffering? When that happens, you are losing the battle. Now, why would people do this? Well, suffering... When you suffer, there is a social response of people having to comfort you and look out for you and, and minister to you. And, and frankly, it's hard to let that go. When you suffer, it insulates you from criticism, doesn't it? When you suffer, you can explain your failures. I was going to be a lawyer, but then I got leukemia. Right? And, and that's a true statement. But people who who do suffer, there is a temptation to make suffering and not Christ your identity. And when that happens, you, you lose your ability to fight bitterness. And we'll talk more about that later. But that's what Naomi did. She gave herself into her bitterness. She defined herself by her bitterness. And then she reinforced her bitterness by continually blaming God. Look at verse 20. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me and went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now she gives four reasons for her name change. The first one, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She uses the term Almighty, that is the sovereign one, the one who is in charge, the one who calls the shots. Uh, she has no problem believing in God. She believes that God is immensely powerful and that God is somehow responsible for this bitter providence. Secondly, she says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Now in the Hebrew, it says, I full went away, empty brought me back Yahweh. Right? There's a, there's a, an emphasis on her state. When she left, she was full. Not that she had a full belly because there was a famine in the land, but that she was full, that she had the present security of being married to a prominent man, an Ephrathite, 
And she had security in her future because she had not one, but two sons. But now all that's been taken away from her. Now you could just say, well, the Lord brought her back. He didn't make her empty. But in, verse, in the, the next phrase in 21, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The, the image is this. She's in a court of law standing before the Lord, the judge, and the judge takes the witness stand and testifies to her guilt. Doesn't have much of a chance in that situation, does she? The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There it is. The reason for my suffering is because the Lord took away my husband and he took away my sons. I have, I have nothing. Now, some might want to soften this and say, well, this is a lament. Right? She is lamenting, and there is a beauty and there is a purpose in lament. The Psalms are, are full of laments. Jesus lamented when he was on the cross. Uh, Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but, do you, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Right, David, the author, he's telling God of his plight. He's speaking to God. He's being emotionally honest. I am experiencing all these things, the Lord. Lord, I, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why you are doing what you're doing, but I am talking to you. Who's Naomi talking to? The women of the town. The women of the town. This is not a lament crying out to God. This is a complaint against God to the women of the town. When we keep on reading in Psalm 22, we see a pivot. Yet you are holy, verse 3, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. In the midst of this bitter providence, the psalmist is saying, I know, I know you can do it. I'm talking to you because you have the answers. There's no appeal to God, recognition of God, hope in God in this bitter lament. And finally, there is no sense of personal responsibility for Naomi's role in her present situation by way of review. While they were in Moab, she presided and encouraged the marriage of her sons to Moabite women, to marry outside the faith. She decided not to return to the promised land until there was food to be found in, in Judah. And on her way to the promised land, she tried to talk her daughter-in-law, Ruth, into returning to Moab, to her people and to her gods. Ruth, don't follow me. Go back to your pagan religion with your pagan gods and suffer pagan torment forever, right? That, she was not a mature believer. She was bitter. So bitter, in fact, that she did not believe that she deserved what she got. That's why she's complaining. Further, her bitterness blinds her to some of the great blessings in her life. Now, up until this point, uh, Ruth is not even mentioned. 
She just gave one of the great speeches in Hebrew history when she says in Ruth 1, 16 through 17, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She made this speech, and she fades into the background. But then the narrator introduces her again in 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we're now going to transition to the scene where Ruth will be harvesting in the fields of Boaz. But what you see is evidence of God's grace. One, God's grace on the people of Israel. There was a barley harvest. After 10 years of famine, the Lord is finally blessing their land. You can almost imagine that everybody's in a good mood here, right? Which probably amplified Naomi's bitterness. But then you see the other element where Ruth the Moabitess is named again. And as we will see, the faithful love of Ruth will be God's means of redeeming Naomi and extending the family line. In fact, at the end of the book, not to give away the ending, after Obed is born, and given to Naomi as a son. The women of the village say this in Ruth 4.15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. She lost two sons. Her daughter-in-law is worth seven sons. You do the math. Do the math. She is a blessed woman. Now, what's interesting is, did Naomi see that at this point in time? Let me read you another passage. I'm going to review it again. 121. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back, with Ruth, empty. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back, no offense, Ruth, empty. And here, Ruth will be worth seven sons? I mean, sometimes when we are so focused on what the Lord has not given us, or so focused on what the Lord had, has given us away, um, we're blind to some of the great blessings that He has provided for us. You develop a, a mental construct, if you will. The Lord's hand is against me, and you look for all proof to reinforce that. I have been in chronic pain for a long time. The Lord is not letting up. Well, the Lord has provided a, a family that loves you and, and provided financial support so that you're not 
out on the street and, and uh, you know, he's, he's using your story to encourage others. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. I want my health back. And so you remain in that state. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but haven't you been there? When you're really bitter and somebody points out some contrary evidence of God's goodness, you say in your heart, that doesn't count. Ruth doesn't count. Bitterness blinds you to the blessings of God. But you know what? Even though Naomi is not able to see the blessings of God, God's going to bless her anyway. Because God loves bitter people. Did you know that? That's the good news. You might be bitter at God, but aren't you glad he's not bitter at you? (laughs) And as we see as the story plays out, there is a rescue operation where God uses the faithful love of Ruth and Boaz to rescue her from her bitter plight. And I would imagine at the end of the story, if you were to interview Naomi, she would probably say, yes, I was bitter. But I'm thankful for how the Lord used this. So if you find yourself in a bitter place right now, how do you get out of it? How do you get out of it? Well, you look at this uh, diagnosis here. Right? You look at the pathology of bitterness, and it gives you some information about how to reverse the process. Number one, instead of making your suffering and your bitterness your identity, you make Christ your identity. I know many of you men are studying 1 Peter, which is a glorious book, and and you know that it's set against the backdrop of a suffering church. People are being persecuted and are suffering for their faith. And what's really interesting about that book is how much Peter teaches these men and women, these brothers and sisters, about the importance of identity, right? Suffering is good because it reinforces that you actually belong to the Lord. Your identity and embracing your your Christ-centric identity and who you are in Christ is key to pushing back against bitterness in the midst of suffering. For instance, in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, One of the great passages of of our identity as Christians says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And part of this distinct change and transformation is that we respond to bitterness and bitter situations in a way that's different from the world. You don't suffer as a non-Christian, you suffer as a Christian. For instance, when he's talking to, to slaves, right? If you think you had it bad and your boss did not treat you fairly, try being a slave in the Roman Empire. And this is what Peter tells them. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21. For what credit is it if when you are, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he's saying, one, when you suffer, don't suffer for the reason that everybody else should suffer. 
When you suffer unfairly, when you endure this bitter situation, this is an opportunity for you to emulate Christ. When you see yourself primarily in terms of your identity of who you are in Christ, you will see the suffering and the pain and the tribulation as an opportunity to double down and refine that identity in your life. Do you see the difference? Instead of making suffering your identity, you make Christ your identity. You frame your suffering in terms of who you are in Christ. And what does this do? Well, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of his visitation. One of the great apologetics of the Christian faith, my friends, is when we suffer in a way that's different than the Gentiles. When we suffer in a way that's distinct from unbelievers. When we suffer with dignity and hope and trust, like we actually believe that heaven is real and our relationship with Christ is what really matters in life. That's beautiful. The world can't explain it. Lean into it. Secondly, instead of blaming God for your suffering, blame sin. Instead of blaming God for your suffering, you blame sin. People suffer because of sin. That prisoner on death row is suffering because of his sin that he committed. Well, that's easy enough. Sometimes that person who has been abused by some authority has suffered because of the sin of others, right? You blame sin. But then you think about other forms of suffering, like, like cancer, right? I can't give you cancer. How did that happen? Well, that was caused by sin too. The sin of Adam and Eve. The wages of sin is death. They introduced death and suffering into the world through sin. All suffering is because of sin. So if you're going to blame anybody for a bitter situation in life, don't blame God for that. You blame sin. God is doing what he can to deal with with this bitter providence. Did you know in, in heaven there's not going to be any suffering? When God establishes his kingdom with his people, suffering will be uh, a distant reality. It won't happen again. When God created the world, he created it, and what, what was the word again? It was good. No suffering in it. That was his original design. And what we live in now is a world where we have all these fresh reminders that this is not the way that it should be. Paul testifies this in Romans when he talks, when he basically speaks for the earth in Romans 8, 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is not happy with the suffering that they're enduring. God hates suffering. God hates death. So much so that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to kill it. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on human flesh, took on flesh and blood, so that that flesh and blood could be suspended on a cross and basically endure the most bitter event that anyone could ever experience. He was abandoned by God. He was betrayed by his people. He was humiliated and shamed, and he suffered. He bled, and he died so that he can kill death 
and deal a death blow to sin once and for all, but God raised him from the dead. And you know what? He suffered a bitter providence without bitterness. 1 Peter 2, 22-24. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But he was reviled. He did not, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus endured a bitter fate for you, but was not bitter in the process, did not sin even when he was, had every reason to. And so when you look at suffering and why you experience what you experience, Sometimes it's just helpful to remember what you deserve. I've heard it said that when somebody asks you how you're doing, you can always say better than I deserve. You're checking out at Walmart. How are you doing today? Better than I deserve. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I should be enduring eternal hellfire, but now I'm talking to you. <laughs> Great opportunity to share the gospel, right? But isn't that true? And sometimes having the humility to understand that we actually deserve worse than our bitter circumstance is helpful. I think about a man who, who came to terms with this. Jesus was not crucified alone. He was crucified with two thieves. Well, at least one thief. I don't know what the other one did. Maybe I will when I go through Luke. But as they're reviling him, this, this is what this thief says. Luke 23:41 Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. Now that's an incredible statement. He was a thief. Can you imagine the uproar if we crucified a thief today? This guy was a thief. He just stole some stuff and you're executing him, you're crucifying him, and yet here he says we're getting what we deserve. This guy did not. And then he says, and Jesus, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. An act of faith. I'm getting what I deserve. You're not. I see that you are the Messiah. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief was not so focused on his own suffering. He realized he got what he deserved. But Jesus did not. His suffering was his fault. Not Jesus's and certainly not God's. Jesus was in the act of removing all eternal suffering from him. And thirdly, you see the blessings. You see the blessings. You know, we, we talk about how Ruth was a Christ figure, right? She had enduring love. And what's so interesting about Naomi is she says, I came back empty. Ruth doesn't count. Ruth doesn't count. I know you're going through all this stuff, but you know, Jesus loves you. Well, that doesn't count. You may not say it, but sometimes you mean it. And that's where we have to look at our suffering and frame them that when you suffer, you're suffering as a Christian. 
And there's promises that go along with it in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This will work for your good in some way. This helps us to apply 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You don't give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. There's always a reason to thank God because you are never suffering alone. Jesus is with you. Now, before I moved out here, I had a chance to work on the missions committee at my former church, and we supported two, two ladies, Dee Grubbs and Muriel Hersom. If there was ever a real-life Ruth and Naomi situation that I've seen, they were like sisters. They deeply loved each other, looked out for each other in a very appropriate, God-honoring uh, relationship of friendship. And they were missionaries to the deaf and blind. What a ministry. You know, one thing that they kind of learned is people often don't become deaf and blind at the same time. Usually one sense phase and then the other happens. And so they made it their, their mission to learn how to do this tactile sign language where they would sign into their hands to communicate with them and they would help rehabilitate them, help them to understand and they would teach them the gospel. And they lived on Peanuts and they lived in Highland Park. And if you don't know the LA area, Highland Park is kind of like Beverly Hills, but the opposite, Okay. It's the place where, oh, you're from Highland Park, oh, right? It, it was dumpy. I went to serve them, and I saw where they lived. They gave up much. No family, no marriage, no children, no real retirement, and Muriel suffered a stroke. That threatened the use of her hands. And when your whole life is built around signing into somebody's hand as a form of ministry and your calling in life, when that's taken away, what else do you have? And as I visited them in the hospital, you know, Dee was there consoling Muriel. And, and as we talked, it was, a, uh, it was a grim situation. And I just remember Dee taking Muriel by the hand and saying, Muriel, what do people do without Jesus? And that just, just stuck. Christian, it doesn't matter how bitter your life is. If you have Jesus, it's never going to be that bad because it's going to have a happy ending. And if you have Jesus, he has a faithful love that will carry you through it. And even if this world just gives you a fistful of bitterness, if it's just force-feeding you arugula, you still have the sweet love of Jesus that will pull you through it and welcome you into eternal glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I do thank you for just the faithful love of Jesus. And Lord, forgive us when that's just not enough for us. And I pray for anyone who's going through a bitter situation right now that this message would just set them on the right path to help them to see that Jesus is enough, that they will make their identity in him, that they will see the blessings, and that you will minister to their souls greatly. In Jesus' name, amen.